welcome to the ALN podcast series. If you like what you're hearing, you can find this and other podcasts, videos, papers, and more at assetleadership.net. Today's episode is brought to you by the Andrew James Advisory Group. AJAG provides training in the ISO 55000 standard, and our world-class training qualifies students to take the ALN A55K certification exam, an industry recognition of an individual's knowledge of the standard. Certified individuals add value to any organization's asset management initiatives. Realizing your ISO 55000 vision need not be painful. Visit us at www.andrewjamesadvisory.com to see how we can help. Now, enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome. Thank you all for being here on this August 26, 2021. I am Nick Kenoki, the Director of Technology for the Asset Leadership Network, and I am calling in from my home in Lander, Wyoming. Uh, before we get the show underway, I just want to thank our patron sponsors, ABS Quality Evaluations and ABS Group Company. Uh, and Onuma System. And if you want to learn more about our patron sponsors, you can visit those websites, abs-qe.com, abs-group.com, and onuma-bim.com. Our other organizational members, you can see here in front of you, and we are very grateful for their continuing support. Uh, They make programs like this and others that we do at the Asset Leadership Network possible. So thanks again to them. And one last note before we get underway, uh, next Thursday, we'll have Mary Adams. That's September 2nd here at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time. And so we would love to have you join us for that as well. Uh, And then, yeah, just one last note. If you're out there watching, we would love to hear from you. So please send any comments or questions, feedback, uh, anything you like in the chat. And if there's a good question, we'll make sure to get it answered for you. Uh, And with that, Back to Jim Dieter and Mike Arnie. Hey, thanks, Nick. Thank you very much. Uh, well, it's a real honor today to uh, to get uh, Mike Arnie as our guest. Uh, he's been an ALN senior fellow for a while, and uh, as we were preparing for this, we asked Mike to send over a, a brief bio, and uh, you know, it knocked my socks off the things that Mike's been involved in. So uh, now I understand the, uh, the uh, amazing breadth of his knowledge uh, and expertise with DOD and the Air Force, uh, running major projects, works with the national labs, which I've had a chance to do a little bit in the past. Uh, and it just goes on and on. Uh, one, any number of Air Force and DOD uh, commendations and awards, uh, including things that have the word president, presidential in them, uh, pretty impressive. Uh, but, uh, you know, our focus today uh, will we'll be uh, in the facility and asset management realm mainly. But, uh, well, first, Welcome, Mike. It's uh, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Jim, and I appreciate the opportunity to spend uh, some time with you and the ALN. Yeah, that's great. It's uh, this is a, a great example of why we started the Thursday at four. Is <clears throat> you know in March of last year, when we realized we wouldn't be able to have in-person events, we started to uh, you know come up with a program of. Uh, virtual events and Thursday at four was one of them. And while we could put on, we and have put on lots of webinars and more to come in the fall, but we thought one of the things that was missing was those kind of just kind of chats, you know, the kind of conversation you have during a break or over lunch or after over a beer at the end of the day uh, and get to know people a little bit. Uh, and also uh, to talk about some serious stuff, a lot of business gets done and a lot of information is exchanged. So uh, I miss, Mike is one of those people I always really enjoyed uh, talking to in those kind of circumstances. So uh, so Mike, we usually start with some sort of an origin story, but uh, uh, that thread's amazing. But let, let, me, uh, let me ask you, when, when was the first time you heard the term asset management? How did no, you start I- to get involved in that? Well, thanks, Jim, and I appreciate the question. Uh, asset management is a relatively new term to me. 
obviously, since I affiliated with Asset Leadership Network, I've become very familiar with asset management. But when I really think about it, I've been doing asset management my entire life. Maybe didn't define it with those particular words. Uh, my first duty assignment in the Air Force was as a uh, facility programmer. And my job was to define the requirements for both operations and maintenance uh, projects for facilities, as well as capital improvement projects. And uh, I had a small team and included a real estate team at, at that time in the Air Force's organizational construct. And so, you know, from the beginning, uh, this was an identification of, uh, first of all, what are the assets? What are the condition of the assets? What is a reasonable uh, level of uh, expenditure on a year-year basis for operations and maintenance? And then identifying and filling in uh, those, uh, those projects that build out that operations and maintenance program. Uh, a little bit later in my career, I had the opportunity to lead the uh, Air Force's uh, uh, major electrical power production and distribution systems. And with that, I had oversight of all of the assets. And once again, this was kind of going back to my roots, identifying the requirements based on having good data associated with the inventory. And then rec ranking, ranking the uh, order of the projects uh, to presumably uh, best meet the Air Force's mission. And that, that was going back uh, 30 years ago. Now, if I look at ISO 55000, that's essentially what ISO 55000 is all about. Know what you have, know the risks associated with uh, the conditions of what you have. Uh, seek what it is that the agency can afford to spend on this area. And I'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later on. And uh, then obviously execute to the best of your ability, those projects. Yeah, the, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, the leaders internationally in the ISO effort and asset management, uh, you know, probably could, in, in very broad terms could say similar things is starting out with much more with a focus on the assets and evolving to the point of using that information to make uh, decisions that impact the objectives of the organization. Uh, and it seems, we wonder why is it so complicated to explain those to people <laughs> that, uh, that, uh, that perhaps haven't, haven't seen it that way in the past. I don't know. If you have any stories on on, on uh, trying to uh, convince people they should be doing better at doing this? Well, that's an interesting, uh, you know, when you said that, that's about what was coming in my mind. Uh, I, I'm going to spin towards the end of my Air Force career. And uh, the last uh, 12 or 13 years of my Air Force career was at the senior level. And uh, in the Air Force's uh, planning and programming process, you typically take your colonels and they become part of what's called a, uh, an Air Force group. And they, they identify by functional area, the requirements, uh, they the, uh, aggregate the requirements uh, from a functional point of view and then present them to the group, the Air Force group at the colonel's level. And then there was a level above that was uh, called the Air Force board. And that was typically one and two-star general level and I can remember in a number of meetings of the Air Force Board uh, speaking eloquently about the facilities requirements and uh, the, having a set of pictures that said, look at this for the want of fixing this runway. We lost a very expensive airplane uh, landing gear because it went into a, actually a grate, a, uh, a uh, stormwater grate had failed and the airplane was driving over it and, uh, and uh, broke a landing gear. Uh, you know, that's kind of a significant emotional experience for the pilot, but more importantly, it was a great, it was a great example, uh, I thought, to the Air Force uh, leadership that said, look at this, uh, because we didn't spend the right kind of operations and maintenance money, we lost this uh, landing gear. 
And, uh, you know, eloquently, the head of the Air Force Board came to me and says, okay, so how many times have we lost landing gears on airplanes over the last five years because of uh, stormwater <laughs> rates uh, failing? And of course, the answer was never. <laughs> and then he said, well, uh, just, okay, I understand that. There's always a first of everything. Uh, go back and study this and find out how many of those grates are out there in the Air Force and uh, which ones are going to fail next and how much money we should do to fix the grates. And of course, I kind of was cringing and saying, that's not the issue. The issue is the bigger issue of, uh, you know, mission is impacted by failure of facilities. But, you know, I went off and uh, did a study of uh, storm grates on runways and found there might have been six or seven out of an inventory of maybe hundreds that uh, needed to be fixed. So they gave me the money for six or seven. But that wasn't, uh, that wasn't the, that wasn't the uh, result I was seeking, if you will. Yeah. But I did get money for those six or seven grades. So then I changed my story. Um, yeah. I got promoted and the Air Force group reports to what's called the Air Force Board, which is the ones and two stars. And then the ones and two stars, the Air Force Board report to the uh, Air Force Council, which is made up of the three stars and uh, some four stars. And I had the opportunity to sit on the Air Force Council for a while. And my elegant story changed to pay me now or pay me more later. That was my argument I used. Uh, and I had more facts and figures and found out that I better have my story both from the past and the future. And so I had a pretty good storyline of uh, what would be the cost of operations and maintenance, not much on, um, on new construction, but on operations and maintenance going forward. And uh, they, they, they listened to me and I had a very good story. And uh, the, the, the leaders came back to me then and says, well, here's the issue. Put yourself, since you're sitting at this Air Force Council level, if I had one dollar to spend, would I rather spend it on training for the work for, for the military members to go to war or on this roof? And the answer, of course, clearly was on the military member and their training requirements. And so I learned the lesson there was you can have the elegant story and know exactly what you need, but it's got to fit in the larger needs of the mission, needs of the organization. And that's kind of where I'll stop that story to say that you got to really understand if you're going to sell your story, you got to understand the story that you can sell and how you're going to influence the leadership who are going to make the decisions. Because you're typically the facilities engineers do not have an unlimited budget They're They're constrained by the budget that they, uh, uh, that they are given. And the goal is to do it in the most effective and efficient way so that you can, uh, maximize the value, reduce the risk, and achieve the greatest mission. Because you won't have enough to do everything. Yeah. If, you know, as you know, with all the national talk about infrastructure now, a little bit of a tangent. Uh, you know, you know, we we worked with ASCE to try to get some words in the bills uh, that talked about the need for asset management and the long-term perspective. It's not just a shovel-ready project, it's, that project's gonna be around for n number of years and it needs to be maintained and kept up and you know, supported, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any, uh, have any reflections or thoughts on, uh, on the, how your experience would uh, connect with that project? Uh, well, I'll skip onto that just a little bit and, uh, and uh, give you some experiences. Uh, you didn't mention, but uh, as after I uh, retired from the Department of Defense in 2016, I had the opportunity to lead a uh, Federal Facilities Council study okay. on uh, essentially establishing a strategy for making the business case for renewal of federal real property or federal facilities. And there's a lot packed in that sentence. So we're talking about a strategy we're talking about a business case and we're talking about uh, not only the uh, maintenance and repair, but also the renewal and the repurposing of federal facilities. And the idea being here was for the study group to look at 
and offer uh, methodologies, uh, strategies, if you will, for bringing how we spend money in the maintenance and repair area that will possibly be best used to prepare for the renewal of facilities. And then an eye towards the future that says, maybe when you renewal, you do a renewal. It isn't necessarily um, in the form and shape and function of what it was. That is to say, repurposed. And so the study uh, has uh, proceeded through the report writing phase. Uh, the study has been reviewed by a peer review committee. Uh, the committee has uh, responded to the peer review and it is currently in, uh, in the final review processes within the National Academies for publishing. And effectively it's about uh, the renewal uh, methodologies and strategies for the renewal of federal, federal real property. And so what we learned in that study, and I, although the study is embargoed and I can't go into a lot of detail, I, I think I can, I can say this as a reasonable aha moment. You can have the best O&M program in the world, but if it's not linked to what you're doing in, in uh, facility replacement, you could be uh, spending money in O&M that you're basically gonna tear down when you do something else in new construction. And so uh, it sounds obvious, but you have to have an, a systems approach. And that's what asset leadership, that's what asset uh, management is all about. It's a systems approach and systems thinking across the entire life cycle of the systems. Now, gee, that sounds like stuff we've been doing for 20, 50 year, 20 to 50 years in the business of federal real properties. But uh, oftentimes, and the budget is a good example of this, the O&M, the operations and maintenance and repair budgets are separately reviewed and, uh, and prepared from the capital improvement program. So tying those together in one way, shape, form or another and arguing the best is the best across the, the uh, life cycle uh, will in fact meet the needs of what the federal government has written as part of their national strategy for an efficient and effective use of real property, which has been out for about uh, four or five years now. So long in that, you, there's probably 30 minutes worth of discussion, but uh, the bottom line is what I learned was you've got to integrate the day and day with the long-term capital expenditures. Yeah, and the budgeting process just seems to be such a trip point with that, that it's, uh, you know, how do you assure there's gonna be a funding stream to do that uh, with the cyclical budgeting process? Yeah. You we know- We don't have a very good answer for that, do we? Well, you know, and you could look at this again from a portfolio point of view, well, there's uh, in the capital uh, capital program is a good example, right? Uh, I'm going to build a um, a 25 or 50 million dollar building. I'm going to build that once, and you know maybe in a in a, a facilities engineer's lifetime, he builds two or three of those major complexes. Mm -hmm. uh, they're big, they're expensive, they're lumpy is the term that is often used in the budgeting. You budget this 50 million dollar uh, building once, and you won't see it for another. 50 or 100 years. But if you bring in the asset portfolio to a large enough level, some of that lumpiness is absorbed. And so there's budget tricks out there how to, if you will, smooth out the lumpiness when you start managing at the portfolio level. Yeah, interesting. You know, it's funny, it makes me think of my uh, small homeowners association in my community here. Huh is you know, we have really a very strong reserve fund. And it's, you know, we pay a little bit every month into it. Uh, but when we need to replace uh, asphalt or sidewalks or roofs or lawnmowers or whatever it may be, uh, you know, nobody's coming to me and asking me to write a big check. <laughs> right. And there's actually a revenue, a reserve study that's written for the, uh, the condo association by a, uh, a certified firm that does these types of studies. Um, I will argue that's kind of what your facilities managers do at the more senior levels. They're, they're running basically a, uh, a reserve study, except 
uh, if you will, the money is, is allocated on a year-by-year -year basis on the operations and maintenance account in the federal government. So the budgeting, the budgeting is a different budgeting mechanism, but the thought process is year over year, and Department of Defense I can speak to fairly well, year over year, it's about a $35 billion program. Now, some years it's a little bit higher, for example, uh, during times of a base closure round, uh, the new construction phase grows a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, but year over year, it's $35 billion. So manage within about a $35 billion portfolio. Now, odd things happen and, uh, you know, oopses occur that are, you know, part of that emergency response where you have to pull money from someplace else to do something else. And that's, you know, that's understood too. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so we were, uh, before we came on, we were just chatting a little bit about the Federal Real Property Council. Can you, can you tell us a little bit of what that's about? People might not know even what that's about. Yeah, and Jim, that's the reason I mentioned it is I'm not sure how much uh, ALN really knows about the Federal Real Property Council, but uh, by an act of Congress a number of years ago, uh, there was the creation of something called the Federal Real Property Council. And the uh, land holding uh, departments and agencies uh, have to uh, identify a senior real property official, someone senior enough in the organization to be able to uh, cut across uh, all aspects of the, uh, of the facilities program. Uh, the, it is uh, tillerly head, I shouldn't say that. Uh, it is uh, led by the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, the uh, General Services Administration plays a very strong role in the day-to-day -day executive uh, management of the Federal Real Property Council. Uh, they have a website. I encourage everybody to take a look at Federal Real Property Council. And one of the things they've done a number of years ago, and it's improved over the years, is created something called the, the uh, Federal Real Property Management System. And with that, a Federal Real Property Profile. You know, how many buildings and how many square feet and how many acres of, uh, of owned land? Um, how much is leased versus how much is owned? Uh, that, that has been something year over year, the federal departments and agencies have been reporting to OMB and is published as part of a, uh, published data, a public data set for the citizens to review and uh, understand how the federal agencies uh, use their real property. And, it, you know, some things are obvious to you, but until you sit back and think about it, uh, the Department of Defense is one of the largest departments in the federal government, right? And they have a, a very large uh, federal facility footprint. But when you start delving through that footprint and examining it, there are more operationally related uh, facilities, say on a square footage basis, than there are admin facilities. We have more hangars and... Uh, as opposed to administrative spaces. Then you start digging into a place like the Department of Justice and you say, well, they got all these people in the Department of Justice, but a fairly a large portion of the Department of Justice footprint is courthouses. And federal courthouses, sure, may look like an administrative facility in some ways, but it's got uh, courtrooms and uh, uh, specific uh, jury rooms, and you can call them administrative spaces if you want but they have very unique needs that make them a little bit different than say a office building. Now, granted there are office buildings within the, within the portfolio, don't get me wrong. But uh, what I was uh, actually learned as I went through my journey in the, in the Department of Defense profile and I had the opportunity to lead the office that uh, depicted that and managed that through a team was how that facility space was actually used to meet the mission. Yeah. So can you talk, you had a lot of involvement in renewable energy. Can you give us a little bit of uh, insight on, on your thoughts on that and that area and its potential? Yeah, so early on in my career, <clears throat> I had mentioned that in the Air Force, I had the opportunity for about five years to essentially, although that was not my duty title at the time, but essentially be something like the chief electrical engineer for the Air Force. But in specifics of what I did, 
who has managed the capital replacement of the major uh, uh, high security, high reliability electrical power generation and distribution system for uh, places like Cheyenne Mountain, uh, Thule Greenland, um, the Philippines uh, uh, facility at Clark Air Base and the like. And, and uh, from that journey, I learned a whole lot about the use of energy and how to make energy more efficient. And so that started me on a journey of understanding uh, energy, energy use in the Department of Defense. And, and just to give you an idea of the footprint of energy use in the Department of Defense, and these numbers are somewhat dated, uh, but uh, the department uses about $3 billion a year uh, to pay uh, uh, electric and natural gas bills. And not to overshadow that, but uh, I had the opportunity when I was in the Office of Secretary of Defense to run the Operational Energy Program. And the Operational Energy Program is the program that uh, ensures there's fuels for jet aircraft and, and tanks and boats and the like. Uh, the energy bill for the operational side of the, of the Department of Defense is somewhere around $10 billion a year in round numbers. So operational energy was much, much more expensive than facility energy. We spent a lot of time worrying about facility energy, but uh, frankly, once we got into an understanding operational energy, we found a whole bunch of ways to become more efficient in its use and more cost effective. So you've heard this term efficient and effective uh, through a couple uh, threads of uh, my thoughts. And it is what fits. Uh, we, we, the uh, federal facilities folks, have to ensure that we can provide those most effective and efficient facilities to meet the mission needs. So get back on renewable energy. Obviously, renewable energy could be uh, a uh, significant game changer in that uh, the sun is free if you can harvest it. But the problem with the sun and harvesting it is it only shines half the time. So then you got to think about how do you how do you achieve your mission in that other half of the time when the sun's not shining? Or worse, when the sun gets uh, clouded over. And so even when it's supposed to be sunny, it's not. And so those are the things that I was dealing with in renewable energy. Uh, so not only solar, but also wind. Yeah. A little, yeah. little bit of nuclear. Yeah. Yeah, I have, a, you know, I've got solar panels on my house and it's, a, it's an interesting learning experience doing that. But, uh, Indeed. Yeah. It takes a while to get the payback, for sure. Yeah, you know, I will argue you don't, there is a payback. Uh, what uh, the Department of Defense has done is kind of changed the story over the last 10 years. While we certainly want to be efficient and effective in energy use, what we really need to do is for the warfighter, have the energy we need when we need it and assure that it's there. So uh, the department and most of the government has shifted to this, in my opinion, has looked at this as a energy resilience issue. Mm -hmm. That is to say, yeah, I need energy in an efficient and effective way, but I really need energy to perform my mission under any condition, including in a condition where maybe an enemy uh, withholds the ability for me to bring outside energy in. Yeah, we've read some stories uh, just in that regard in the, in the news lately, I believe. Yeah, Yeah. well, think about this. Uh, we've moved 100,000 uh, people out of the Cabal, Air, Cabal Airport in the last 14 days. How did we fuel those airplanes? You ever think about that? No. And the short answer is we didn't do it there. Uh, we flew the airplanes with more fuel than we would normally fuel with them so they yeah. could come in and leave and not be spent any time on the ground refueling there. That was a not a necessary step to be done in that particular mission set. And so we actually ferried fuel in. Huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that whole situation is amazing, amazing. Uh, Nick? Hey, I'm uh, not here to cut anybody off. Just wanted to say thanks, Mike Amini, for talking with us today. And uh, hopefully you have a few moments to stay for overtime and maybe see if we can answer a few questions from the audience. Uh, I'd and, love to. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, 
before we get to that, I just want to again thank our patron sponsors, ABS Quality Evaluations and ABS Group Company and Onuma System, as well as Lifecycle Engineering, University Health, Uberlytics, Grant Thornton, Andrew James Advisory Group, Aim for AMS, Asset Management Lab, Mentor APM, My Property ID, Registry, and Strategies Insight. And next Thursday, we have Mary Adams. Uh, that would be September 2nd at 4 p.m. Eastern on this show. So we hope you guys will return and join with us to talk to Mary. Uh, and with that, back to you, Mike and Jim. No, that's good. Maybe uh, what we were trying to, Russ Weniger was on, and we were trying to get Russ to join us as, uh, as a panelist to, to say hello. But uh, if he's hearing us, uh, you know, uh, Russ, let, uh, let us know in the chat. We can promote you. But uh, maybe let's, uh, let's see if Jack, uh, Jack Kelly would like to join us and uh, give us his, uh, his always interesting uh, OMB perspective and how it ties together. Oh, there he is. Welcome, Jack. Well, welcome. So it's always a, a treat to hear from, from Mike and his perspectives on DOD. I mean, that's a, DOD is definitely the elephant in just about any room. <laughs> and so uh, they've got, you know, they certainly have lots of unique asset management issues, but they also bring a, a level of, as you can hear from Mike's discussion, you they bring a level of expertise and intelligence to the solution to these issues that not that a lot of the civilian agencies uh, don't seem to bring. So, and for some reason, I'm not showing up in the video, which is probably a good thing. I think the, uh, I think the, the system is, is um, censoring me. That's okay. Anyway, you can imagine what you look like, a handsome uh, man. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> but you know that the Federal Real Property Council is is a group that's uh, sort of near and dear to my heart in terms of what it was designed to do, and I, I don't know how it's doing now. I know that when soon after it was created, I guess it was first created by that executive order back in two thousand four, and then um, and they were I know they were very active back then, and they came up with you know they actually designed the the. Up the upgrade for the federal real property profile. And they also came out with some really good guidance on how to do real property asset management plans. Uh, but I don't know, but then they kind of, you know, OMB shifted direction and, and I don't really know what the FRP, FRPC is doing or has been doing recently. And that, Mike, I don't know if you've stayed in touch with, with what they've been up to. No, not over the last, not with the change of the administration. So, I mean, in real, in near time, uh, the Obama administration embraced the Federal Real Property Council, and it, that's when they published the uh, the guidance on uh, uh, hold the footprint, or if you will, uh, they had two phases of it, but the real phase was reduced the footprint, but that resulted in the national strategy for an efficient and effective use of real property which was in many ways uh, just a declaration of the uh, principles that are within the ISO 55,000 process. Maybe not spelled out in words like uh, 55,000 would have them, but certainly in intent they were. Uh, then uh, as the administration changed, there was a effort to move beyond the, uh, the strategy and I have lost touch at that point. The last There's nothing on the website of, of recent. Uh, I did check this morning before the session just to check and see. Well, the, the last bit of OMB guidance that I have looked at was came out earlier in 2020. And it was the first time that, that OMB seemed to be pivoting back toward uh, looking to a, a reinvigorated FRPC to, to get back into the guidance development business which I thought was a real positive, um, a real positive step. And they talked, it was more of a talk about, you know, linking assets to mission than had been discussed in a long time. I mean, you know, the focus, the thing that used to kind of surprise me was related to a point you made, which is that if you take a look at all the quote administrative um, real property, you, you really, 
you, you just can't assume that because it's quote administrative that it's not mission critical. And so the idea that you're gonna lay some kind of an, what, what I would view as an arbitrary reduction you know, target on, on property that, that you don't really know enough about to make good decisions um, just seemed to be sort of foolish. But um, anyway, I'm glad to see the pivot back to mission. Yeah, well, and in fact, uh, the little lightning bolt in my head that I uh, forgot to mention is that uh, oh. two uh, budget cycles ago, the administration and right. their analytical perspective <laughs> created a real property chapter. Yeah. And uh, Jim, that may be something that we should pull out for you because I think that's a good read for everybody. So in this uh, eight to 10 pages, the administration describe that they uh, that real property needs to be raised to the level of some of the other activities associated in the budget. Before that, it was just a parenthetical footnote someplace. And they laid out, uh, and they have always laid out, if you will, this is the O&M or the operations and maintenance activities. And these were in terms that I'm familiar with, the capital expenditures, okay? Now in this real property, chapter uh, last year, two years ago anyway, uh, they went one step further and they, they created some uh, broad legislative description of how they could link the capital planning process to the operations and maintenance process. And they could, if you will, create a capital, uh, a, this was for the civil side of uh, the federal government, a, uh, a capital improvement fund that effectively was preset with some numbers in it. And if an agency needs to borrow $50 million out of the fund to be able to build this particular project, they could pay back that $50 million over 10 years at 5 million a year, solving what is really the traditionally hard problem of, I don't have very many capital projects and when I do, I don't have a place to be able to pull it out of my normal uh, baseline budget. And so uh, that was, uh, that was uh, carried forward in at least two or possibly three of the Trump uh, budgets. And I haven't seen the analytical perspective, if there is an analytical perspective for this current year budget, I suspect there isn't one, but there will be next year for 22. So one of my former OMB colleagues, Stigel, was, was the, yes. uh, he was the guy that came up with that. And I thought it was brilliant, still think it's brilliant. And I think that, and the latest thing I've heard from Art is that uh, I think it is in the budget reconciliation bill that's being considered now. So, I mean, it's, he clearly had, he clearly has support not only within OMB to keep pushing this idea, but also apparently on the Hill, he's got, you know, he's got some folks on the Hill who understand the, the benefits of uh, taking this approach. And I think it's, you know, hopefully it'll happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, I do too. I think it's years coming, if not this year, next year. The other thing that jumps out at me though, that I still think is a problem. I think it's a huge, I think conceptually it's a big, a big step forward to understand the, the relationships between O&M spending and capital spending and to try to ration, you know, come up with a solution that, that balances the two, you know, pots of money in a sensible way against one another. But the piece that's still missing for me is how do you, I mean, capital spending is not just real property. I, get, I would assume it's also, it could also be, per, you know, large personal property capital expenditures. And the thing that has been striking me, and this is true of the study that, that you were in charge of, is the, um, just the way that study was framed both because it focused on facilities. I mean, to me, when I think about facilities, facilities exist to house personal property, basically. I mean, you know, you've got equipment, you've got people who have equipment. You, if you're, if you're um, I mean, on a military base, a lot of the most mission critical things on that base are things that fly, things that roll, things that, you know, that sail. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, it doesn't fall, it's not the, the real property part it's the it's the it's it's personal property as well and so the the link between i think this was an example by the way it came out of something i i think jack dempsey mentioned 
if you're thinking about a Coast Guard you know, port facility, that you have to think about what sort of ships is that port facility supporting. And you have to make sure that the real property investments that go into that port facility are adequate to support you know, the ships and the aircraft that are also housed at that facility. And, it's, um, and so looking holistically, it right. seems to be what we should be doing more of. Well, and then, you know, that was exactly the comment I made when I said for one of a, of a drainage grate, uh, right. the loss of a, of a aircraft. And now then it could be repaired, right? The good news, it could be repaired. The bad news was it wasn't available flying. Right. Hey, I see something in the chat that I'd really like to talk about. And the question was, based on your experience, what are the top three most important things an organization can do to have an effective asset management plan? Now, I'll probably void every rule set inside of uh, the uh, uh, ISO 55000 when I blurt this out. <laughs> So fix it after after the fact, but I, the three that come to me, yeah, you, sure. You got to know what you have, and mm -hmm. you got to know the condition that it's in, because you can't really prioritize until you know what you have. Okay. Second, you can't prioritize until you really understand. And Jack, this is what you were just saying: its role for the mission. If I have $1, should I spend it on a runway that an aircraft needs to take off on? Or do I spend it now? This is, uh, this is an Air Force story. Bear with me. I spend it on the golf course. And let me be very clear. Golf courses don't use appropriated money. They use non-appropriate money. So <laughs> you get my drift here. I want to make sure my Air Force buddies don't beat me up. The point <laughs> remains is, where do you put your next dollar? Okay. And how do you do that in the mission? And then ultimately, and Jack, you hit it, things that aren't necessarily directly mission driven still are important. Uh, if I had a dollar, would I ever put it in, for example, a childcare development center on base to take care of the kids of the families, particularly of the GIs? And the answer is heck yes. Why? Because that GI who's fixing that F-15 airplane or F-22 or F-35 airplane is going to do a better job fixing that airplane if he knows his kids are being taken care of in a safe place when he's working. So now you have this subtle, but not only is it mission, but it's mission support. And then finally, the third. So first is know what you have in the condition. Two tie it, how do you tie it to the mission need? And the third is the story you tell to sell your, sell your wares as a facilities engineer is different depending upon who you're talking to. When I'm talking to my engineer boss, I'm talking engineer talk to him, okay? But I'll tell you this, when you were talking to his boss, which was the logistician, you'd lose that logistician and all that engineer talk. So you got to put it into a different, you got to put the story and wrap it into the needs of the audience and ultimately understand that the decision maker is going to make a tough decision because there's not enough money to fund all the engineer stuff, all the, all the logistician stuff, all of the chaplain stuff, et cetera, et cetera. They all have to have something to be able to maintain their mission. And so that's a hard decision. And, and in fact, my, my boss in the Office of Secretary of Defense was uh, a former staffer on the Hill. And uh, he left uh, the facilities office and went to be the deputy comptroller the last two years uh, that I worked, uh, worked uh, with him, if you will. He moved jobs and became the uh, deputy comptroller of Department of Defense. And you know his, his comment to me was, well, my perspective changed when I saw the world from the other side. And I will fund facility stuff until I just can't fund facility stuff anymore. There's a line. And at that point, everybody's got to stop whining and everybody's got to march to the mission because somebody had to make that arbitrary and capricious decision. So selling your story to the decision maker is one of the art of knowing who the decision maker is and what makes them tick. Him so, or her. 
along that along that line, one of the things that um, I, I'm I'm assuming that you were aware of what went on in the, the Air Force in terms of telling the story about, you know, the uh, refreshing the as, asset management portfolio in the Air Force in order to preserve mission readiness. That presentation that Russ Weniger and his team has have given several times that creates that like ribbon sort of presentation that basically says, here are all of our air bases. And here's, here's their readiness based on the color that shows up, you know, the red, green, um, yellow presentation. And, and I, I mean, I don't know enough about the technical underpinnings of it, but in terms of telling a story, it really, I mean, it, it tells kind of an interesting story and it tells it in a way that gets people's attention. And, and I, from what I understand, and you would know this much better than I, it apparently has been able to, to help the Air Force get some traction, not only at the higher levels in the Air Force, but also within DOD. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, imagine, imagine a rectangle and this rectangle has mission facilities over on the left side and pure support facilities over on the right side. And each little, each little square in this rectangle, lots of squares because there's a lots of buildings, right? So every building is a square and every color, every building color coded red, yellow, or green. And you can start putting all your money in the red buildings on the left, the facilities related to the mission, and you only have so much money. So as time goes on, as you invest, you can see where, well, the line of the Air Force's mission facilities are getting better. Way over here on the right side of the, of the rectangle, all those facilities of the mission support area are beginning to fail catastrophically. And so now you can begin from a decision point of view of saying, okay, uh, I need to be not only making the mission facilities good, but I, there's a point where I need to start shifting this over to some of the other. And so every building was a, was a chiclet, and it's called the chiclet chart. And every, every, every building was a chiclet, and you could see over time what it was the investment strategy. If you put 60% in mission and 40% in support, or if you spread it out a little bit, or if you spread it out over, say, a peculiar area like dormitories, because once again, uh, dormitories play a very important role. They house airmen, but they actually are the place where airmen make a decision, airmen, soldiers, sailors, and Marines, to make a career of the military. Right. They're influenced by that. And if they, if they come to the Air Force, Army, Navy, and Marine Corps and live in crappy facilities, they're gonna probably do crappy work, sorry for my language, but more importantly, they may make a decision not to stay in the military. Well, so why the should other, I live like that? The other thing that was interesting to me about that, that analysis the Air Force did was it's what, you're, what you pointed out is right, but the, also, the other thing is that the, the if you spend money more wisely um, and, and maintain things in a way that they don't fail and cost you more money in the long term, then you start actually, not only do you improve mission performance, but you start freeing up money. And some of that money that's freed up can then go to some of the things you're talking about. And so it's, but it's a balancing act. I agree. It's being able to say, okay, let's, let's try to understand the risks associated with, you know, underfunding this versus underfunding that and then uh, putting all the pieces together but i mean I, you know it, it's 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 so complex my head hurts just trying to get it get it, uh, get myself my head around all that stuff but i thought that what the air force has done was create a good model that I, as i understand it or the last time i talked to russ about it or heard russ talk about it um you know they're continuing to you know, refine that model and make it more and bring more stuff into it. So um, I look sure. at and, and to be very blunt, as the budget ebbs and flows, they can go back and say, this is where we were. This is where we are now. So I had a chat note here about uh, golf courses in the Air Force. And I'd like to swing forward to uh, my experiences in, uh, in the Middle East, uh, first in Saudi Arabia, uh, then Kuwait, and then some other places. Uh, as the Air Force grew in its experiences of maintaining runways, the engineer would bring with him a one foot by one foot uh, AstroTurf uh, pad 
and we put nine of them out onto the sand. And uh, that became the Air Force's golf course. And it worked very well, by the way. I got to tell you my, my Air Force golf course story, because the only reason we're here today is because of an Air Force golf course. This is a previously unheard story. But uh, the only reason I'm in Virginia, the only reason my career ended up going the way it went and getting into asset management is my brother lived here and he was a golf course superintendent. And the reason my brother was here and he was at Washington Golf and Country Club for 50 years, something like that. But the job that he moved to Virginia for was that the Air Force was building a golf club with three golf courses, three 18 hole golf club courses outside of Culpeper in Rixieville, Virginia. And they hired him to be the golf course superintendent. And I came down to visit. That was my first time visiting the South and it, Rixieville was the South <laughs> to be sure. Uh, but uh, I think it never came to fruition and they sold it off. Apparently, uh, they didn't have enough of those uh, unappropriated funds to uh, to float, uh, you know, a uh, how many fifty world four hole golf course or something. Like that. It was not appropriated funds. <laughs> well, listen, uh, we could go on and on, but uh, we want to respect uh, everybody's time today and uh, thank Mike uh, particularly and Jack. And uh, to mention that uh, we will shortly be starting to publicize information about our fall event uh, starting in October, uh, early October, you know, with some events every week, culminating in Asset Leadership Week, uh, the second week of November. And, uh, you know, many of the topics we've had today and many of the people uh, that you saw here today and that, you, you know, are, are on the chat will be among those that are participating. So uh, uh, we're really looking forward to more conversations like this. And uh, Mike, uh, Mike or Jack, any final words? None for me. Thanks for inviting me. This was a great uh, Thursday afternoon for me. I look forward to seeing Mike's report. <laughs> That's great. Me too. Okay. <laughs> uh, thanks to Nick Kanoki and Mike Bordenaro for setting it up. And again, thanks to Mike and Jack. And uh, good luck to Megan, for those that know Megan, and, uh, and Nick too. All right, have a great day, everybody. Thanks uh, for everybody who was able to join us and everybody who watches it in the future. Um, join, us, join us live. It's fun. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed our podcast, and we would like to thank the Andrew James Advisory Group for their sponsorship. For more information about AJAG and their services, please visit www.andrewjamesadvisory.com or email info at andrewjamesadvisory.com. You can find this and other podcasts, videos, papers, and more at assetleadership.net.